Welcome back to the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. This is Calvin Rosser. And this is Steph Smith. And today we will be talking about generative artificial intelligence. The wacky part of your intro is that if you actually trained an AI on your voice, it would sound like your voice, not a machine. That's true, but maybe it wouldn't have been true 10 years ago. That is very true. It feels like everything has accelerated like crazy in the world of AI. And today we want to talk about it. And today we're specifically talking about generative AI. Well, I guess as an entryway to that, we can get into the definition and stuff like that. But first, I noticed this week that you changed your profile picture on Twitter to what looks like a really fierce space alien version of yourself or something. Yes, I changed it for the first time since I really rejoined Twitter maybe five years ago. And just from a creator lens, I've heard people say that you should never change your profile picture because then people won't recognize you. And I bought into that for so long, but partially it was because I didn't really have a better picture or anything substantially cooler. And then the past week or so, I've been playing around with several AI tools that allow you to train an AI on your face. And we'll probably talk about these tools in a second. But basically, I train the AI on my face, and then it spits out different pictures of me. So me as a girl in a bush of flowers, me as Robin Hood, me as the character in a video game. And then one of my favorite ones was me as almost, yeah, like a space-faring creature or person. That's cool. You also changed yours. I did. So I used similar tools this week. I was playing around alongside you. And yeah, I just found a photo that, I don't know, I think it looks like a just a better version of me than I've ever seen in a real image. So maybe you keep it's... saying that, but it is <laughs> it looks just like you because it was trained on literally your face. That's true. So these profile picture apps are cool and we'll talk more about them. But I think as a helpful starting place, I think it might make sense to define what generative artificial intelligence is, just in case people haven't heard of that. Let's do it. Cool. So just stepping back, artificial intelligence, this is my like pea brain way of thinking about it, but it's a machine that takes in information, learns from that information, and then uses what it learns to do things. And so the artificial part of it is the machine and the ability to learn and do things is the intelligence part. And another way to think about it, at least in my head, that makes sense is artificial intelligence is very similar to a human, just in machine form. So you're a toddler, you go through the world, you put your hand on the stove, you learn that it's hot, you learn all these things as you're growing up. And eventually you develop what we call intelligence, which is your ability to navigate the world and go and do things and learn and grow. And you become a thriving adult, hopefully through that process. And so machines operate the same way, except humans feed them the data. And based on the data that the machine is fed, that determines what they learn and their ability to use what they learn to do specific things. So that's artificial intelligence at a glance. And that applies to things like self-driving cars. They use data from cameras on cars to figure out how to drive without a passenger behind the wheel. That's the same thing we use for all kinds of cool stuff in health. But the thing that we wanted to focus on today is generative artificial intelligence, which is basically AIs or computers that have taken in data from the web for the most part, and they can help you create anything text-related, audio-related, or images based on the inputs they've collected. Yeah, I feel like the term generative AI is new, and I don't actually know the bounds to which it applies, but the way I think about it is that this AI is able to spit out something net new, like a digital painting, like a paragraph, like some code that can help a developer. And I liked that you went over this broad definition of AI, because I think it's actually really important for people who maybe aren't as deep in this space to recognize that it is different from code that most people write, because most developers might write I'm going to give you a really simple example, but if there is a user logged in on this page, they get access to this. Really straightforward if or else kind of statements, or it's more directive. But AI instead is getting this mass amount of data, ingesting it, and then like a human, they're a little more intelligent about it. To use your example of a stove again, if you were to talk about non-artificial intelligence, you might say, if you see stove, don't touch it. But if you were to actually give an AI a bunch of images of many stoves, it would be able to recognize the different types of stoves, right? You wouldn't have to actually 
say, hey, if you see this specific stove, the same way that a human walks into many homes, and even though there are many stove models, it can recognize, hey, this actually looks quite similar. And the same way these AIs have ingested all of the pictures on the internet, essentially, it can get a sense of, oh, this is a dog, but this is also a kind of dog. There are many breeds of dogs. And it almost learns in a very similar way to a human. I just had a funny thought. You know how humans have trouble designing doors and specifically you'll see signs on doors like push out or pull in. And it's because everyone uses a different type of door design. So you can't rely on just pushing in or pulling out or sometimes doors even go sideways. I wonder if you gave an AI enough data on doors that they would be better than humans and they wouldn't need all these stupid signs to tell us how to open it. If you had like a walking AI. What's interesting from playing around with some of these tools is you really do see some of the intricacies of humans and as people say, the bias built into some of these tools. To give just one quick example, and we'll talk about these text to image generators that we've played with, but as part of these avatar tools that we both have used, one of the ones I used had an astronaut prompt and me and several other women basically got back either no images with faces or all of the images had been transformed into male faces, even though none of the other prompts actually did that. So it was an interesting, almost like, huh, what's going on here? And it's because, again, in order to generate these outputs, the AI needs a bunch of inputs. And those inputs are trained on, well, it depends on the AI, but for many of the ones we're going to be talking about, just a lot of information that humans have created and put online. For sure. And I think one other piece of context before we dive into the tools is there have been some big developments in the past year that have made a lot of noise in the AI community and leaked down to the creator community. One of them was GPT-3, which is developed by a company called OpenAI. But basically, they scraped the entire internet and they use all the text from the internet to create this AI interface that is very good at predicting the next word in a sentence. And that allows you to do things like generate ideas for blog post titles or help you write things. And we'll talk about those use cases. And then the other one, there's a series of AI models that have been trained on images from the web and other places, and they are able to generate images based on text that you input. So you can say Steph Smith riding in a spaceship, and it might be able to create a picture like that. And other companies have then built on top of these tools to allow everyday people like me and you to do things that we otherwise might have had to do without these tools. Yeah, I think an important breakdown is the fact that there are the AI models that have been built. And those are companies like OpenAI has built a couple like GPT-3 and DALI. Stable Diffusion is a new player in the space, or at least that's the text to image. AI, that's stability.ai has built. And then there are a bunch of other companies like DeepMind, which is owned by Google. And so there's a bunch of players in AI. And those players are the ones who have gone scraped the web or used data sets that already exist on the web to train these AIs. And then they create these AIs and many of them now have APIs. So then there's a second layer, which is what we're seeing a lot of creators on Twitter, for example, do, which is using these existing APIs, they're building on top of that. So maybe they're building a really nice UI that looks like Google Docs. That's something called Lex that I think both of us have played with. Maybe they're using GPT-3 and orienting it, or maybe even training it further, specifically for writing tweets. Another really interesting example of this is Copilot. That's actually a tool also built on GPT-3, but it's specific for coding. So developers basically get these suggestions as they're writing code that, again, are trained on all of this other code that was already written on the internet. I don't know if it was trained on GitHub or what specifically, but the point is that you see these secondary layers, these tools built on the AI models. And then the third part of this is, of course, the creators who then go use these tools. And I think that's another interesting thing for us to talk about is just who gets disrupted, who still has a job, if we want to go the maybe more extreme route. But yeah, it's an interesting ecosystem that's being built, and there are many layers to it. Yeah, so if I had to liken it to something else that might be more understandable for people, it's, I think, kind of similar to the internet came about. That would be similar to those big companies like OpenAI that have developed the actual AI or underlying technology behind a lot of the products. And then on top of the internet, then people said, hey, I want to sell things online. And so you get like Shopify that allows people who want to sell products online to have this nice interface where they can then integrate with payments 
infrastructure like Stripe, et cetera, to sell things online more easily. So you didn't have to go custom code a site or build your own payments infrastructure that integrated with banks. You can just go set up a Shopify store. So that's like those second level products. And then there's all these creators who use those different things and talk about them online. And that to me is actually very similar to what's happening in AI and just might be more broadly understandable. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great example because you have AWS or there's vendors that Shopify uses that work with the underlying internet infrastructure. Shopify builds the tools for other creators. And then there are the people who end up selling stuff through Shopify. So it's all three layers. But what I want to talk about first are just a sampling of different tools that we have run into over the past few months. And I'll just start by saying it has been insane to dig into this world because I feel like I heard a lot about artificial intelligence several years ago and it didn't feel very real. And then earlier this summer, I started hearing more about Dolly. I think that was the first kind of introduction for me of like, whoa, this is really interesting. I haven't seen anything like this before. And then in the last few months, Stable Diffusion launched and then that was open source. So I think even more products got built on top of that. And there's just been this mass wave of creation and it's been really cool to see. And it's still just the beginning. So I don't know. I think it'll be cool to expose people to some of the things that we're seeing. Yeah, I think interestingly, we've now been around in the tech industry for long enough where I used to see things and be like, oh, we're too late to take advantage of something. And I think with AI in particular, it feels like a lot of things have already been built, but it really does feel very early and that this is going to be disruptive in a very tangible way. And that's what makes me curious to at least learn more or play in this space, because I feel like I missed out on opportunities in the past, even when we were early, like with remote work and not really thinking about, oh, we were early and that this isn't something that has taken over the world. Totally. On that note, before we jump into tools... When I shared the AI avatar photos of myself more widely to my friends outside of tech on my Instagram, I was expecting the same reaction that I think a lot of people have on Twitter who are more involved in technology, which is like, holy shit, this is crazy. What's going to happen next? Will any of us have jobs? <laughs> and all of my friends from outside of tech were just like, nice, <laughs> or like no response. I was expecting this big commotion again. And nothing. So I do think you're right that for us, we're like, oh my God, but we are on the fringe and I think it'll take time. And just one example of this that it reminds me of is that I think innovation is quick, but sometimes adoption is really slow. And I saw this article recently from a newsletter, Numlock, which just showed that a bunch of people in Japan are still using floppy disks. And so that's just an example of human behavior. Not everyone is going to adopt AI immediately or use AI tools because it exists. It's going to take some time. Honestly, take me back to the floppy disk days. I'd probably create a lot fewer useless docs if I had less space to store my information on. <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay, let's start with the first wave, which I think was text to text. And so quick recap, basically these AIs are trained on a bunch of text online. So there are a bunch of tools, which again, most are built on GPT-3, but you can type something of your own. And then based on that, GPT-3, and I think GPT-4 is coming out soon, will be able to supplement what you're doing. It can kind of give you your next paragraph or several paragraphs. And we've both been using or playing around with an interface on top of that called Lex. So how have you found that so far as someone who writes a lot? Yeah. So this is probably the part of the AI space that I'm most excited about because if AI can help me be a more prolific writer or a better writer or a less lonely writer, those are things that I see that where it has potential. And actually, before I use Lex, I used something called Jasper, which has raised a bunch of funding and I think has a lot of traction, but they have all of these templates that sit on top of GPT-3. So if you want to generate an idea for a blog post, or if you want to summarize an article, or if you want to create like a personal bio for yourself, they can make that easier. So that was actually my first introduction where I went into their tool. I chose one of the templates. Let's just say I was writing a bio for myself and I was like, I'm Calvin. I like to read. I left tech. I like to surf. And that's all I wrote. It was just very messy. 
And then this tool spit out basically like a bio that I could use on a professional page that said, Hey, I'm Calvin. I love to read books. I love surfing. And I'm actually really obsessed with it. It like picked up on this really funny thing and actually made me laugh out loud. But I was surprised how within two seconds, the bio it created was probably something that would have taken me 15 minutes. And it was like a much better, faster starting point. And so I'm like, Oh, this would save me time. And I don't have to actually think that much about these little things that we have to do around content creation. And then I also did it to generate ideas for our, our podcast. So I inputted a bunch of old titles of podcasts that we had. And I think I generated like 30 ideas. You and I walked through them and maybe we said we were interested in four or five of them for the podcast. But again, that took me like five seconds just to get a bunch of ideas. And so it was this collaborative partner for me. And I immediately saw the way in which you could use this to do low level thinking and to outsource easy to write articles as well. Like for example, you could write a pretty easy like listicle blog post on 10 top financial tips for people. These tools would be able to make you these tools would allow you to be able to do that like really quickly if you didn't really care that much about quality. So did you find that any of the results in either of the scenarios were good enough that you would use without the extra layer of editing from you? I think the bio example was one where I would have to do only bite editing, which was actually pretty surprising because that's a personal thing. And then actually the area where Jasper was best was they have a content summarizer. So I threw in an article from different places like the New York Times, my own website, et cetera. And it then created like this quick summary, which was like an intro paragraph and five bullet points. And it actually did a pretty phenomenal job of breaking down the argument and the summary of an article. And I was like, wow, this is pretty good. And I think you could use that for different things. I was thinking, oh, it'd be nice if we could do that with audio where we actually just throw in our podcast and it creates like a summary for us because I know we do that sometimes after the podcast in the description and it's hard to do. I don't know if there's tools good enough there, but in that case, I was like, yeah, 100%. And then if I wanted to write a fluffy listicle blog post, I think it would actually be good for that as well. I don't necessarily create those types of content, but for sure, if you had like a job with a blog that just wanted to pump out content, these tools are almost good enough to just do that with very light editorial work. Totally. And we're only on GPT-3. Imagine GPT-10. I mean, it's only going to get better from here. And even with GPT-3, or maybe it was even GPT-2, I remember a bunch of people who would write articles with the AI and then post them in places like Hacker News. And then right at the end of the article, it would be like, ha, did you know this was actually written with AI? And so I think actually we're getting a lot closer to the point where human involvement isn't massive in certain areas. And it also reminds me of, I read this article from one of the founders or maybe co-founders of Copilot and how they went through the product cycle and developing Copilot. And actually when they first were developing Copilot, and just a reminder, Copilot is the tool that developers now use to enhance their speed or their efficiency with coding. When they were first doing it, they thought, hey, we're going to create this tool and it's going to write all the code for you. And that didn't work because part of the time it wasn't correct. And eventually they pivoted to a model where, hey, we're not actually going to write all the code for you. We're going to be basically like this assistant, this little person on your shoulder who's like, hey, can I help at all? I'm just not forcing you to, but it's like this bicycle of the mind, if you will, from Steve Jobs back in the day about what a computer can do. And so I think that's an interesting frame to just consider that, well, AI might become so good later where actually no human involvement exists. But in the meantime, it really is this supercharger for whatever you're trying to do. Because I've had similar experiences with Lex when I played around with it, where I was like, oh my God, I still need to be involved, but way less than I was expecting. I think one of the other key observations that I had was it became immediately obvious to me that there would be this new skill for you to take advantage of these tools, which is learning how to use the different prompts or the UIs that companies build to get the most out of the AI. And so there was definitely a little bit of a learning curve where every new tool I tried, I had to figure out how to use their prompts to get the information or outputs that I wanted. And if you got really good at that, I think the level of human involvement decreases almost exponentially because the AI is giving you exactly what you're looking for. It's just somewhat of a new skill set, similar to Googling where if you gave someone Google for the first time, they probably wouldn't know how to query things to get the answers they were looking for. 
But now over time, if you grew up using Google, like you're very good at finding exactly what you need almost immediately. Yeah. In fact, as a parallel, when I started learning to code, I realized that I'm probably simplifying the art of coding a little too much, but I realized that a big part of it was just knowing how to Google things, how to get the right error messages. It was this nuance of finding out the right information so you could proceed forward. And I think you're right, Google's the same way. And from my experience of both text to text, but even more so text to image AI tools, the prompt matters so much. When I first started playing around with the text to image tools, I would put in something like monkey dancing and it would give me something okay. But as I played around with it more, and I think a lot of people are recognizing it, the art is in the prompting and so is the IP, in my opinion. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how the whole IP conversation evolves. But if you go to an example of a new tool that's being built, a secondary tool, is the site Lexica. It's lexica.art. It's actually a prompt library. So it takes a bunch of the images that people have created on Stable Diffusion, and it shows the prompts. And the key takeaway, if you go to Lexica, is just that the prompts are way more complex than you might think. They are very, very long. They are not Dancing Monkey. They are like Dancing Monkey, 4K, high resolution, Wes Anderson style, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think you're right that even though AI is somewhat of an equalizer, it gives everyone the ability to write more, to create images more, the prompt really matters. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. And actually, Lexica was super interesting for me to see with the text to image because even right now, I'm looking at a picture of Shrek and it has some cool lighting and all kinds of other things. But the prompt is 150 words. And some of them are candlelight, beautiful color, gritty, cinematic lighting, trending on art station, hyper-realistic, focused. It's like just such a specific thing to get these images. And that to me actually gave me a really interesting thought on this whole thing where a lot of people, they see these awesome images and they say things like, oh, designers are going to go out of business or, oh, people who create art, they don't have jobs anymore. But as I looked at the detail of each of these prompts, I realized that there's a vocabulary around good imagery, things like the types of lighting and all of the details there, or the types of styles that made me think, oh, you actually do need an education in the things that make for good design or good photography, or even just understanding the different cultural things that are going on to be able to say things like Wes Anderson style and to have that produce an image that looks like you want to. And I feel completely inadequate in my ability to use these text prompts to generate images. And so there's definitely space for companies to help you do that or places like Lexica to help you train you on the vocabulary that you need to use. But in my mind, there actually is still an advantage if you are a photographer or a designer or just someone who is entrenched in this world of creating good imagery and style because all of that is included in the image. And so you need to be able to pull that from your brain. Yes. I want to talk about two things in response. The first one is really quick, but do you know what the most common word or part of a prompt is in stable diffusion? Naked. <laughs> you would think, or some people might guess something like cat. Interestingly enough, it is this guy, Greg Ratkowski, who is an artist and has a very specific artistic style that people seem to like. I think he's quite a successful artist, but that is just a separate fascinating conversation, which I don't have the background to understand, but there is going to be push and pull with different artists because I think you're right that we have a lot to learn from the best artists in the world. But then the question is, okay, well, <laughs> do these artists just want uh, to copy their style? I think it's a different conversation if the artist maybe is dead. You see a lot of people say, hey, Picasso style or Monet style or something like that. But yeah, do you have any thoughts there? A lot of things just came to mind. One would be yeah, do the artists somehow benefit from this? Because otherwise their style becomes just a commodity that anyone can access. And actually what probably made their art so valuable is that it's rare, it's unique, it's coming from them. So if anyone can access that style without actually tapping into the artist, then maybe that somehow devalues their work. But at the same time, it gives the artists almost like a household name and spread their style everywhere, almost similar to what happened in the wake of Hemingway's work as a writer 
many people copied his like simplistic style of writing and prose. And I think in some ways it actually became devalued in the works that came after Hemingway, but it made his style more valuable because he was original and you kind of were like, oh, this is the OG. So I think, as you mentioned, there's some sort of push and pull or advantages and disadvantage to this for artists, but it's kind of crazy to me that it's this one person's style that gains so much attention. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how prompts evolve because I think one fascinating part of this world is that you do have places like Lexica where you can learn from other people's prompts and maybe there's even a site, maybe it already exists where you can see the frequency of certain prompts and you start to integrate the most popular ones. But yeah, I don't know how this is going to advance, but it really can go either way. There are definitely cases where artists are screwed by people copying their work, but then there are other cases like Banksy that leaned into it and was like, hey, we're not only going to allow duplicates, we're going to help other artists actually duplicate our work. I don't know how it's going to work, but imagine you're a new artist trying to create a new style that you think people are going to appreciate. How does that then get integrated into the model? Is it always going to be biased towards the old artists or the data that it's trained on and it's harder to create innovation in some sense? Or maybe there's some sort of lag in terms of getting your style out there? I'm not sure. That's a great question because I think most of these tools will have upgrades. I don't know how often and I don't know how hard it is for that to happen. But for example, when you use Lex, it mentions that, hey, this is using GPT-3, which came out on this date. And so if you are writing about anything really timely, it won't get it. It might be able to still provide you something useful, but it doesn't have that context. And so I think that's actually a, a pretty good question about how that actually relates to the timing of art as well. I want to mention one other thing, which is the fact that we're talking about the value of prompting if you just want the output of an image directly from the AI. But many of these text-to-image tools also have features like in-painting and out-painting. And just for listeners, if they're not familiar, in-painting is basically you can say, hey, I really like this image, but I don't like this hat that I asked for on this monkey. And so can you change that to ears or can you put something else silly on his head? Or I'm sure you can think of better (laughs) uses for in-painting. But the point is it allows you to refine an image outside of just the original prompt. And then out-painting is similar, but it's actually extending the canvas. It's actually very cool, but when OpenAI introduced this and subsequently other tools have introduced it as well, they took famous paintings like the Mona Lisa and they basically were like, what's happening around the Mona Lisa in this painting? Or there's other examples, but the reason I'm mentioning this is because yes, the art of prompting will be important, but I think the best artists will be able to also use these other features like in painting and out painting. And I think that's also a creative endeavor. That's something that if you were to put me up against a really great artist with those tools, I might be able to come closer to them on the prompt. I don't know if I'd be able to say, hey, I want to refine this or let me think through what we can do with extending this canvas. Exactly. And that's where it just goes back to me. There is some anti-fragility if you have this skill set of just being aware of what can be done or the vocabulary around that and just an eye for details as it relates to the design-focused parts of AI. One more thing, just while we're on this topic, is there's a creator, Cleo Abram, who has a YouTube channel, Huge If True, and she did a video on AI. And one thing that was cool, and of course, it's sample one of one, but she paired up with this artist and they each created one piece of art with the AI and one without. And then they got people to vote. And the guy who she paired with was a legitimate artist. She claims she is not. But what was fascinating was the order that people ended up voting on them, as in which was the best. Can you guess what the order was? They like the natural version of the artist? No, it was the artist plus AI, then Cleo plus AI, then the artist, then Cleo's original, which is, I know it's anecdotal sample size of one, but it's kind of this idea of bicycle of the mind. It's like humans plus this technology ended up winning in that case, but still the artist who had the most background plus the AI beat out the person without that background. So I guess the takeaway is if you're an artiste out there, then you might still have an edge. Yeah, I think so. We'll see how it pans out. But 
I think the idea that AIs are going to steal everyone's jobs are just maybe not the reality we're going to face. Just circling back to an early point on the exploration with the text-to-text tools. So Lex is the writing one that I've been using the most. And one of the, I'd say, unexpected benefits of the tool for me was I was writing an article. I was stuck. My brain wasn't working that well. So I just put what I had into Lex and then I let it write a few paragraphs. And I didn't use those paragraphs one for one, but they actually had good ideas, better ideas than I expected. But the more interesting benefit was I actually felt like I had a collaborative partner, almost like an editor who understood me, who understood my language and who could almost give me feedback on my writing and give me ideas. And writing is a very lonely, isolating pursuit. And I think some people self-select into that and they enjoy the toil of the writer. And I certainly do as well, but there is something to working with others. And it's not always that easy to work with other writers because they're hermits and they don't want to show you anything because they're embarrassed. But it's almost like I had this safe space with this tool who wasn't going to judge me, but who could kind of understand me and help me progress that piece forward when my mind wasn't in the state to do it on its own. And I found that to be an interesting thing. And it made me think about the way in which AI can be a collaborative partner and make certain pursuits less lonely. Totally. And this isn't in the generative AI space, but there are tools like Replica. I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but it's a tool which is basically a chatbot that talks to people and it's their companion, they say. And there are all these Facebook groups of people who literally start to believe that their replica is real, or maybe they acknowledge that it's not real, but they have this connection with it that feels very tangible. And I think you're right that when I played around with the text-to-text tools, I was like, how did you think of that? Or there were nuances that I was really surprised by. One example was I was playing around with it to come up with untranslatable words. So I fed it a bunch of bullet points of an untranslatable word, and then in brackets, the language, and then the definition. And maybe this is obvious that it would do this, but it spit them back out in the exact format that I had input. And that was something where I was like, whoa, this is quite nice because as as silly as this sounds, I've worked in jobs before where you ask someone to do that and the human does not do that. The human will give you like some jumbled up, really badly formatted output. And this was like a, whoa, this is really nice. That's spooky. You want to talk about spooky? My other encounter with Lex was I asked it for AI predictions just for the hell of it. And I wrote up this paragraph about, okay, people previously thought AI would focus on repetitive, straightforward tasks. The reality is that they're much more creative, which is what we're talking about here. And then at the end of my paragraph, I said, although it's hard to forecast this far in advance, AI in 50 years will. And then I left it. And then it gave me four bullet points, which were, it'll be ubiquitous, It'll be able to communicate and collaborate with humans. It'll have near human or human-like emotional intelligence. And it'll have their own history and culture, which, by the way, I thought was fascinating. But then I prompted it again because I was like, I want it to keep going. And then it gave me one more with a period at the end that said, and may even be sapient. And I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) So I prompted it again. I was like, let's keep it going. And then it crashed. It literally was like, there is an issue with GPT-3, which I've since heard happens, but this was my first encounter with the crash. And I was sitting in a cafe and it really was one of those job drop moments where I was like, dude, we're in a simulation or the AI is just messing with me at this point. But anyway, it was pretty spooky. You know, what would be funny is if all of this AI stuff is just bullshit and there's humans on the other end, just fucking with you. (laughs) I mean... A lot of startups are built that way. It's like, hey, we have AI automated things. And it's really just me on the back end, just responding and pretending to be the technology that I've promised to people. I know, right? I think the speed at this point makes me think no human could do it. Or, as I said, the attention to detail. All right, let's move on to a couple other tools that we've played around with. So both of us have played around with two avatar creation tools, avatarai.me and profilepicture.ai. So Cal, why don't you explain what these tools are and what you thought? Yeah, so these were two tools created by indie makers, which are just individual dudes that I think you've met both of them at different points and I met one of them. And they just had this idea of, hey, maybe we can use these 
text to image prompts to help people create new profile pictures or headshots or avatars that they can use in different places or that they would just find fun. The way both of them worked is you paid something like $30 and then you uploaded 20 photos of yourself, some mix of close-up headshots, sometimes full body shots. You didn't really know exactly what to upload. And then within a couple of hours, you were given like a hundred photos of you in different settings. And so we talked about it with your profile picture. There was like me in a spacesuit. There was me looking like a Greek god. There was me looking <laughs> like a, a model and all kinds of other different prompts and stuff. And some of them were just totally off. They had distortions. They really didn't look like me at all. But my experience was actually pretty cool in that there's at least 10 from each batch that looked surprisingly like me. And I thought in some ways like better, cooler versions of me in very cool settings that I wouldn't have been able to get even if I had all the time, money in the world and was working with talented designers because I wouldn't have been able to dream up the image that I got. So it was very weird to see yourself in these different settings and for that to not actually be a real image. Yeah, it's pretty spooky. And one weird thing that I think both of us experienced was that when you first get your images, you go through them and you're like, oh, I like these five. And then you go through them the next day and you're like, I didn't even see these five. And I also like them a lot, maybe a little less, but it was weird to... I don't know, see all these pictures of you in these different scenarios. And then I think you also learned something about your face, or I did, I think, and how you look or how your face is composed. And one weird thing for you is when you first got your batch, I thought a lot of these don't really look like Cal. But then in real life, I was like, oh, maybe you do have features like this. And it was very bizarre. Yeah, it highlights certain things about yourself. I think in my first batch of photos, I uploaded photos where I was doing silly things with my face and my forehead was very scrunched and had a lot of wrinkles. <laughs> and so a lot of my AI avatars in that first batch, they had unusually wrinkly foreheads and made me like look a little bit older than I thought I did. And I'm like, damn, do I need to be using some face cream or something? It just brought attention to this thing that I never really thought that much about. And your forehead wrinkles are not bad. So I think it really does just accentuate things. Or in some pictures, you just look a lot older, which is actually a pretty neat use case. I think there are other apps that already did this before. I don't know if they used AI, but you could see, what do I look like when I'm 80? And I feel like in these cases, you got to see many different ages in a way. Yeah. And one other thing that came to mind as I was going through this is I don't have my parents anymore, but I thought it'd be cool if I uploaded photos of my mom and saw what she looked like based on different sets of training photos. And then my mind went to something like, damn, I wish I had a bunch of like audio or video recordings of my mom as well, because what if you could just upload all this audio of yourself or video and the AI can then spit out conversations with this person that you've lost who's no longer there just by taking in their voice and in many ways simulating their style, their laugh, their way of talking about things that to me actually was like oh i should start recording things of people in my life because that would be a cool way to cement someone's legacy i don't know if i've seen anything like that but i know that's got to be coming down the road well for the avatar tools i think i saw a couple of people do this i think Anne lore one of our friends uploaded her late grandma's pictures and there was little things like oh the ai actually recognized that she wore some sort of headdress all the time. And that was implemented in the outputs. On the note of voice, I think there's a lot of tools about to roll out for voice AI, and that'll be fascinating in many ways. I do worry about this idea of having this everlasting asset of someone, not because of privacy or things like that, but more so letting go <laughs> in a way. I feel like this is literally the storyline of certain sci-fi themes. And it's just to consider whether people will all of a sudden feel like someone is still alive when they're not. Yeah, but is that a bad thing? I don't know. I, I really don't know. What I will say is it seems to be coming. And I think I even saw a startup that is working on exactly this. But I think maybe one takeaway is just, as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, it just feels like there is so much to be built. Just to give a couple examples of other things that I've played around with. Last night, I found this tool which allowed you to animate between different prompts. And that was really cool. And 
I could see how that could be applied to create literally like a short animated film. There was another tool I saw, which was a Photoshop plugin. So instead of creating things in one place and then having to import them into Photoshop, you're able to actually prompt directly within Photoshop. And I think that's been an extremely successful plugin so far. And then there are libraries already, which are just housing all these tools. So that's another very simple business to create. But there's just so much going on in this space that I can't see slowing down anytime soon. No. And the more we talk about this, the more I'm realizing there are these kind of deep fundamental questions of, is this good or bad for us? And one parallel I want to draw is a lot of people are focused on aging or death as a disease that can be cured. So that's longevity science. And there's lots of people trying to live a lot longer. And there's this idea that maybe we could actually live forever if we treated aging as a disease that we can reverse. And one of the things you have to ask yourself is, okay, let's imagine for a second that's true and we solve that problem and then you no longer die. What the fuck happens to life and how we think about it? Because life is so centered around this idea that it's finite and that's in the back of all of our heads. For people like me, it's actually in the front of the head all the time. But does life lose its entire meaning if it is not finite? Do you make different decisions? Does culture fundamentally change? My guess is yes, in very different ways. And on the AI side, I just thought to this idea of what if you could preserve a loved one forever by using their voice or video or AI? There's some really positive things you could do with that. For example, let's say you had a strained relationship with your mom or your dad, and you weren't able to deal with some of the issues that you had with that person while they were alive. Imagine a therapist-guided session where you actually get to interface with your dad talking about the childhood traumas or the other things that person caused or had those conversations that you wouldn't be able to have that maybe would help you heal in some way. That's like a kind of crazy, fascinating thing. But then there's the flip side of that where people become maybe obsessed with staying in contact with these people who are no longer here and maybe they lose touch with the current reality that they have. And actually human life isn't designed to have people around forever. And that would be a really unhealthy thing, even if it was like a good idea to be able to revisit those past traumas. So there's like pros and cons, but that's pretty deep and fundamental to the human experience in this way that has my philosopher brain just firing on all cylinders. Yes, I do wonder how a human connection, even if it's sometimes parasocial, how much that matters for creators as an example, because if art is created by human versus AI, do humans care about that? Are they really just looking for the best art or do they care that some human was behind it? Or for example, Taylor Swift just released an album and it's doing super well. And I think the music is excellent. I personally think that very soon there will be an AI that can create just as good music, but will people care about that music if it's created by an AI or is there some sort of layer underneath that people really care about because they're like, Oh, this is Taylor Swift. We've been following her for so many years. We know who she's dated and we like the arc. We like the drama. We like to know that she's happy or sad or that she's hiding things from us and she's dropping Easter eggs. And there's this human to human component to it. And I do wonder whether you can recreate that with AI. In some ways, we see proof of that with people interacting with Replica. But I I think maybe that is for at least some period of time where humans can differentiate in just other humans knowing that they're human and resonating with that to a degree in a way that maybe even equal art, equal music, equal writing won't resonate the same way if people know it was just generated on a bunch of GPUs. I think you'll probably get a distribution of people. Some people will be like, oh, I want the absolute best stuff. Don't care if it's human or AI. Like, why does that matter? And then there will be people who'd be like, no, I only buy things from other humans because I value the human experience. And you actually see something similar with almost all products where some people are fine to buy the mass commoditized stuff that's produced in China and that you can get on Amazon directly to your doorstep. And then other people are like, hell no, I would never do that. I only buy local or I only buy made in the USA, or I only buy handcrafted stuff. And I'm actually willing to not only just buy that stuff, but to buy it at a massive premium over these other things that I can get even more easily. Yeah. I also wonder though, in certain circumstances, whether people will be able to tell. Now, of course, some people will outwardly say, hey, this was created by AI. But as the stuff gets so good, Unless there's a hardware layer that says, hey, this is marked as created with AI, I do wonder whether 
you can really tell. And therefore, I don't know if the people who want to differentiate, I don't know if you're going to be able to tell. One counter to that, at least so far, would be that I downloaded the photos of my avatars from both avatar AI and profile pic AI. And I don't know if it's because they're just downloaded and not true iPhone photos, but they don't recognize as me. As in, you know how in an iPhone it'll say, hey, here's a bunch of pictures of you. For some reason, it doesn't say, hey, this is a picture of stuff. And as you've seen, it'll recognize like the grungiest pictures of me where I'm looking to the side or I'm like in bed or just, I don't always look the same, but it seems to recognize other photos of me. And for some reason, it hasn't recognized these AI ones as me. And so what I'm getting at is maybe actually we can have a layer that isn't at the hardware level that differentiates between AI and human, but I think with time that'll disappear. So there was this beautiful line in an essay I read called How Will We Write in 2030? And it's exploring all of the different ways in which AI is shaping the way in which we write and how that will change over time. And it's written by a woman. Her name is Marie Dole. At the end of her article, it's just a great line, but it speaks to what you're talking about. So we come back to the following observation. The future of AI writing lies in its capacity to become indispensable without being identified. And so what she's trying to communicate is AI is definitely going to shape the way we write, and it's going to be embedded even probably within the great authors. But because of this value for the human connection and say the process of someone who sits down and produces good art, you need to find a way to use the AI without it becoming identified by other people. And that will be the master piece of this craft where it truly is just an extension of you. And it's not an easily identifiable modifier of what you would have otherwise done. Yeah. I also wonder if in a way it pushes us to be more creative. Now, it does feel like we'll constantly be chased by the AI because even the most creative folks, I feel like it's not long before maybe the AI advances in that way. But there are still things that I don't think, at least so far, the AI can do, which is like creating a world. I don't think AIs today can create the land of Hogwarts and Harry Potter. And that is a long, long journey that a reader goes through that J.K. Rowling developed in her head. At least for now, my understanding of the text-to-text AIs are that they're just trying to predict the next, is it word or paragraph? Its predictions are very recency-based. I guess coming back to the idea, I don't know if it can really create a world, a story. And so we'll see. We'll see if that changes. Yeah. And there's some things that AI just won't be able to do for you, like build muscles for you. You're actually going to have to go to the gym and do that. So that could be a differentiator. Actually, on that note, we've seen over time that when something becomes really democratized, sometimes humans actually become a little allergic to it in a way. And so an example of this from Nathan Bashas has an article about AI. And basically, he talks about how when Unsplash came online, it gave a bunch of people access to pretty high level stock photography for free. And basically, prior to that, having high quality stock photography on your website was a positive status symbol. It then became a negative status symbol. And that's why you saw a bunch of websites adopt things like illustrations, which were harder to get. Now that's changing as well. And now there's a wave of the same kind of illustrations for a while. And I think the point is design is evolving. And once something becomes really common, it actually moves down the ladder in a way in terms of status. Yeah, this is the long told tale of the hipster. The thing that was once cool is then adopted by the masses and then you got to move on to the next thing. Exactly. All right. So I said on Twitter that my only prediction around AI was that I don't have any predictions because this stuff is moving so quickly, but let's do it anyway. What predictions do you have? Okay. I'm not usually a prediction person myself, but I do have a few thoughts on this. And the first is that generative AI is going through a hype cycle. So there's tons of excitement about these tools. Both you and I have spent our entire week just playing around, getting lost in the internet rabbit hole of all the things we can do. But that to me is not that dissimilar from, say, the crypto hype cycle of a year ago. And I think what happens within hype cycles is there's something fundamental going on. In this case, I think we've identified actually practical use cases in a way that's very exciting and looks like it's going to shape the world. But I guess my prediction is that 
generative AI for at least some period of time will be in the over-promise, under-deliver phase. And it's going to take a while for it to be adopted by a lot of people and actually integrated into our daily workflows in ways in which it enhances what we're doing. I got to disagree with you, man. Okay, man. <laughs> I think AI went through that hype cycle phase a couple of years ago. I think now it is at the point where there are so many use cases. And I think you're right that maybe there is a little hype right now around the kind of broad use case of, oh my gosh, it's here. But I think very quickly, we're going to see many tools directed at specific applications. And so just to give an example of this, if you go into Stable Diffusion or Dolly or Midjourney, you can prompt it and you'll get a bunch of images out. But if I'm, let's say, a content manager at a tech company, I don't want to put all these random images on my blog. They're going to look really disjointed. They're not our brand color, et cetera. And so I think one really obvious use case, and I'm sure someone's building it, is the same way that on these avatar tools, you train it to your face, you can train it to your brand. So you can upload your brand colors. You can train it around maybe a bunch of other illustrations that your brand has used before. And then once that exists, it's like a no-brainer. I mean, sorry to the <laughs> design teams at those companies, but once you can create that and you can still input prompts based on the articles you've written, that's like a super clear use case for a specific person, if that makes sense. And if you're going to take that even further about orienting it around a very clear use case, you also have it scan the article and use that as a prompt. You don't even have to write the prompt. It just spits out six different options for the sharing image and you just choose your favorite one. And then I don't know if this exists already, but imagine you can actually train it and say, oh, I like these two out of the six. And then I can do reinforcement learning to understand what you like. So point is, I think you're right that the broad use case of a bunch of people being able to generate images, I don't know if that specifically is a game changer, but the specific tools I think will be. I think we're actually in agreement on there's tons of these practical use cases and they're actually not that far away. But at the same time, at least in my own experience and playing around with these tools, there's a lot of excitement, but I haven't yet built them into my workflow. There's a lot of things I think I could do and the tools are like almost there, but I still go back to my old habits and such. And I think part of that is because all of these companies are building on top of GPT-3 and stable diffusion and other things. And those companies are so new that there's this big vast sea of different tools that you can interact with to do certain things. And those tools themselves aren't the best designed for specific types of people trying to do specific types of things. And as those tools evolve, and I find the ones that work for me and I get more used to playing in this space, then I will be able to use these tools in ways that really enhance my creativity, productivity, level of prolificness, et cetera. But I think we're a little bit further away from that than people might expect based on some of the initial hype. Yeah, I think we are more aligned than I thought. I think there's a huge amount of opportunity around people building just really clean UIs, almost like making it easier for people to interface with artificial intelligence models. Because right now you're right that if you're a good developer, it's I think, pretty easy for you to integrate with these APIs. If you're not, there are more and more of these UIs emerging, but that is a barrier. And then, as you said, also making it familiar. So you can build that habit of, oh, instead of going to Google Docs, I'm going to go into Lex because I'm used to working in there. And it has just as good features in addition to the AI. So that's a great segue into my second prediction or point, which is I think the best thing you can do right now is to play around. And so just we're in this space, there's lots of hype, there's lots of excitement. I think that's actually warranted in this case. At the same time, you have all these companies popping up, you, you have the tech evolving, you have GPT-4 coming out. And what are you doing in this environment if AI is going to take some piece of your job or it's going to be a part of the future? For me, it's just playing around. It's exploring with the tools. It's following different people who are more tapped into the space than I am. And little by little, I'm going to find those pieces that I can integrate into my own life and also build this skill set of learning how to use prompts or how to use tools in ways that are specific to adding value to what it is that I do. And again, I think this is similar to how I thought about crypto a year ago, though I actually put money in this time instead of just 
time of playing around with tools where there's all these things that, yeah, seem pretty fluffy, but there's this underlying technology that I wanted to get familiar with. And so I played around with it. And I think that's the best way that you can maybe discover something and not get left behind if it is true that AI rapidly progresses and takes over certain parts of the world. You want to be on top of that over time instead of fretting once that job that you thought was so cushy and stable, not so much anymore. Yeah, I think this is such an exciting time to be building. And while I do encourage people to learn to code and actually with these advancements in AI, I actually think it's more important than ever. But ignoring that, there are many opportunities to build in this space. Even if you don't know how to code, you could create a newsletter. I talked about different sites you can build with no code that organize different tools that are out there. Also, I think one opportunity here is to create some sort of AI influencer. I think on the pod before, we've talked about this girl, Loma Kayla, who is an influencer on Instagram, TikTok, etc. but she doesn't exist. With those avatar tools that I mentioned, I think you can go and create the next Loma Kayla, but you don't have to be the 3D rendering designer that did create Loma Kayla. We could create locale little stuff. If people have made it to this part of the episode and think this is a good idea, please let us know. (laughs) Oh, one other no-code thing that I've seen people create is these prompt books. I think Guy Parsons was the one to create the first one, but then I saw another one come out recently. And it's just these people who are playing around with prompts like crazy. As we mentioned, doing good prompts is actually hard and there's something to learn there. And they create these books. And I think the first one was free, but I could easily see someone going and selling that too. Yeah, this seems like a good idea for a coffee table. You could actually have the picture and the prompt alongside it. And it's just like unique art. And that would be cool. Totally. So we create the low-cal, little Steph art book. Oh, another idea from the AI avatars was one of the outputs was these little figurines of yourself, little bobbleheads. And I was like, someone should go and get these made. And if we'd go forward with little Cal and little Steph... I think that's what we got to do. That's our merch. Bobbleheads only. The third prediction I have, just getting back on track here, some jobs will go and others will stay. And so I actually think if you are someone who is, say, an entry-level writer, and what you're doing for companies is writing fluffy listicle blog posts or generating decent headlines for social media ads, that is the type of job that can already be replaced by AI. It may not be replaced yet because people aren't as familiar with these tools, but that is not an anti-fragile skill in this world right now. And so I think that means those types of jobs will go, but at the same time, I think the AI is a very long way away from competing with someone who lives a fascinating life and who can write a very well-told story about the unique experience and perspective gained from such a life. And I think that's really good news for say, memoirists, And maybe not so much for social media writers. But my point here is that the unique creativity that you bring through life experience and ability to write about it, if writing is, say, your profession, I think that becomes even more valuable in this world where fluffy blog posts are commoditized by AI. Those tools are not going to be able to tell your life story or to synthesize things in a way that are really going to connect with other people, especially those who value stories from other humans. Yeah, I think Nat Eliason wrote an article on this idea of what AI can't write. And I think that bucket will shrink over time, but it is a nice framing as you're writing to just ask, could an AI write this? And I like the idea of technology pushing us to be better. And in this case, I like the idea, if you're a writer or an artist, to consider either what can I do that AI can't do, or what can I now do better with the AI on my side? I have one final prediction. I'm scared. No, it's on the same job thing. But basically, even if some jobs go, others will pop up. So you and I did an episode on this pod, episode 43, about the technology people feared. But that whole episode was about this idea from the advent of the printing press to bicycles, to computers and smartphones. Every to the time, teddy bear. To the damn teddy bear. <laughs> every, <laughs> every new technology has a wave of people who meet it with resistance and they don't want the world to change. And they're like, oh, it's going to take over and ruin our kids and ruin everything about the world and take all of our jobs. And that ends up being true in some ways. Some jobs do go, but others pop up. 
And so 20 years ago, there's no such thing as a social media manager. Today, you can make six figures doing that job. The same is going to be true for opportunities created by AI. And there's going to be many things that you and I can't even predict right now. But just that's why I think it's important to play around is there's going to be this whole new wave of industry that is built up as a result of this technology. And that will be actually very rewarding careers. But that kind of highlights the importance of playing around and paying some attention to what's going on because then you won't just be the person who's screaming, AI took my job. Now what do I do? I think there will be some of those, but on the note of new jobs, there will be AI related jobs. There will be AI lawyers who have to figure out all of these IP questions. There will be people who embrace this idea that we probably can train our voices on AI and create a fully AI generated podcast. There will be AI educators or trainers or people who create courses around it. There will be, of course, the developers creating the AI and probably many things I can't think of. But you're right that people will have to reskill to a degree because this is just like a new tool in our toolbox. Your point on lawyers made me think of something that I didn't write down, but that is certainly true about this. This technology is going to create a whole wave of ethical and moral questions that is just going to integrate with the existing conversation on things. So AI is going to have all these biases. It's going to be unequally distributed to people. So you can imagine kids in school that have access to better AIs are going to produce better papers. How is that fair to kids who don't have that access? It's just going to compound advantages to the people who already have them. This conversation is just an extension of things that already exist in society, but some of those things may be even further amplified, and we're going to have to figure that out. I actually read an article that kids are already using AI in school, and they would have to cite something coming from an AI, similar to if they got that from like a research paper. So there's all these like details around that, and then interesting societal questions. And then, of course, there's all the companies, what are they doing with your data? So in the social media world, our attention was sold to advertisers. That's how these companies monetize. How are AI companies going to monetize? Are we going to become the products again? And what's going to happen when companies have data that is hacked or leaked? So let's imagine you and I upload a bunch of personal photos that aren't shared with the world to train the AI to make us look really cool in these avatars, but those photos are leaked to someone. What's going to happen in that case? They might be able to create like a deep fake video of us, or they might be able to impersonate us in different ways that then make it hard to tell. Did Cal or Steph actually say this, or did they actually do this thing? We already have this problem of people don't trust the information they see and they go in their own echo chambers. This is just going to compound all those things because it actually is going to make it very difficult to tell what is true and what's not true. And I think there will be solutions that come up, but there will be this messy decade long period at least of these things going on and the big moral and ethical questions that come with all of them. Yeah, this feels like a very exponential technology and many other things that you mentioned, like <laughs> law or philosophy, don't move at the same pace. And often that's good. You wouldn't want law to be changing every second of every day. But I do wonder, I very much wonder how this is going to pan out. And I think your point on trust is really interesting because we're seeing this in small arenas right now. Something it reminds me of is actually the chess controversy recently, where basically the AI became better than humans at chess, and that happened a while ago. But now there are still human-to-human -human tournaments, but then there's a lack of trust in many of those tournaments because people don't know, are you using the AI or not? And I know that's not precisely what you were talking about, but there is just... I feel like there's going to be this lack of trust in society. Is something made by an AI or not? Is it real? Is it not? Is someone cheating? Are they not? Because it is such a powerful tool, but I don't know how we're going to track some of this stuff. And even identifying, is it cheating or is it not? Just to give you an example with writing, let's say I had a paragraph written by an AI in my article and it wasn't copyrighted from somewhere else. It was truly a unique thing and I used it and I thought it enhanced the article. Is that still me? Can I say that I wrote that? That's like a small trivial example of the lines get blurred to say, was I the full producer of this? Or do I have to credit you know, OpenAI's GPT-3 system because they also contributed to it? And that when applied to things like chess is different. Maybe there's a clear cut thing. Is this person using this tool in the game to somehow enhance their cognitive performance similar to someone using steroids? And are we okay with that? You can think of like sports where there's a more developed thing of we don't allow people to use certain performance enhancement drugs 
because it's an unfair advantage to the other competitors. And so those are banned. And I think there will be a very rich set of questions for lawyers to answer and to get rich off of. Yeah, I feel like there's going to be a lot of lawyers who specialize in AI. To give another example of where lawyers are going to come in, these models are trained on these massive data sets. And so stable diffusion, for example, I looked up and it's trained on this data set called Lion Aesthetics. Lion is L-A-I-O-N. And it was this model built in Germany, I believe. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because I read on the Stable Diffusion website that no one could opt out of being in that data set in the way that it was produced. And I think it's in accordance to German law. It's okay. But point is, I think there is going to be pushback from a bunch of people who are like, I don't want to be in these data sets. And so I guess who is to decide that? And then it's obviously a question of what jurisdiction they're in and how that's applied to the rest of the world. Point being, every time I start to think about this stuff and the ethics and the philosophy around AI, my brain just breaks because I think it really does surface these really rich questions that I don't know if anyone has the answers to. I think there's a very simple answer here, which is that you and I need to be AI lawyers. I feel like we've got a lot of ideas right now. (laughs) We can be AI lawyers. We can be little Steph, little Cal. We can continue being podcasters. Maybe we can create the first AI-generated podcast. I feel like there's been episodes, but not a true full podcast built on AI. We've got a lot of opportunity. And on that note, should we end it there? (laughs) Yeah, we got to go work. (laughs) If you want to find us, you can find me at StephSmithIO on Twitter. And you can find me at Calvin underscore Rosser on Twitter with a cool new profile picture. That's true. And you can find our podcast Twitter at Sidlis, S-Y-D-L-I-S, which now that I think of it, we got to change our cover art. Hondo P. All right. Thanks for listening. Until next time.